0: Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Trying something new. I'm going with a flat surface this morning because last night, if you were here, I spilt my coffee right in the middle of the service, and it doesn't work on an angled podium real well. So if you're wondering why in the world did they change, there's reasons. Um, Do me a favor. Grab your Bibles and turn to John 10. We're going to start this morning in John 10. We're actually going to spend most of the morning in John 9, and we are getting near the end of a series. That is called the way, the truth, and the life. That those three words—that's actually from a verse in uh, the Book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." And it comes at the end of a series of verses, starting in John 14, where Jesus is calming his disciples' hearts. It begins, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me. You believe also in God. And then he goes on and talks about his return because the disciples were realizing that Christ was soon to go to the cross and their hearts were troubled. And one of the things that we did as a church was when uh, we went into the fall and really this fall and all winter, we have made a very intentional shift or move to be in the gospels. Because sometimes when the world is crazy and we're faced with um, pandemic and elections and strife and so many different things, we felt the go-to move was what Hebrews calls uh, fixing our eyes on Christ. So we've spent the majority of the last few months in the Gospels focusing on the life, the interactions of Jesus Christ. And more specifically, what we've done is we've been comparing who Jesus said that he was to what he actually did and how we engaged with people. I've had a verse on the screen quite a bit during this series. I should have it memorized right now, but let me put it up there for you again. Luke 4.18, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, and he stands up, and he basically gives a mission statement for what his entire ministry is going to be. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So if that's Jesus' mission statement, if that's what he has set out to do, then we need to compare his actual ministry to what he said his mission was. And if he stays consistent to his mission statement, then we know that he can be trusted. And as you take your Bibles and you turn to John 10 this morning, it's interesting. In the middle of John 10, there's a marker. It tells us where we are. It says that we're in the winter. And this is the winter before the spring where Jesus will go to the cross. So we're probably three months, maybe four months away from the cross. Jesus is several months, almost, probably almost two years removed from when he gave his mission statement. And he's going to make a declaration in John 10 and then we're going to compare what he says in John 10 to how he engages with people in chapter 9 to see if Jesus is consistent to who he says he's going to be. I'm going to pick it up this morning in John 10, verse 11. Look what it says in John 10, verse, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, And this is a kind of an analogy or a word picture that you see throughout the Bible, this idea that Jesus is a good shepherd, and if he is the shepherd, then we are the and one of the things that we know about sheep is they are dumb or stupid, okay? <laughs> you guys got stuck on which word. It's like, which word are the dumb sheep supposed to say? So, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about sheep because the text in John 10 really doesn't talk about the sheep very much. It's focused on four characteristics um, that make a good shepherd. The one thing I'll say about sheep is this, that we are prone to wander, Isaiah 53 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way. The only thing you need to know about sheep is they're not the most intelligent creature on the planet and that they tend to wander. Not going to be focused on the stupidity of the sheep. Let's look at the um, character of the shepherd. Four things, if you're keeping notes. Here's the first one, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Four times in this passage, in verse 11, in verse 15, again in verse uh, 17, and then in verse 18, Jesus makes this statement: "I lay down my life for my sheep." He said in John 15, verse 13, "Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down that someone lays down his life for his friends." So a man walks into a bank. He's wearing a mask. He's holding a gun, and he tells everyone in the bank, "Hey, everybody on the floor." Hands over your face. Nobody's looking around, and he goes up to the teller, and he says, give me all your money. So she hurriedly loads all the money that she has. She puts it in a bag, and as the man turns around to leave, his mask falls down. He hurriedly picks it back up. He's a little panicked. He looks at the people that are lying on the floor with their eyes covered, and he says, hey, did anybody see my face? And in the back of the room, this hand goes up, and he walks over with his gun. He goes, did you see my face? And the man says, No, but I think my wife might have got a peek. (laughs) I'm guessing in that moment, um, the man may not have actually loved his wife. Would you agree? And what Jesus is saying, the first characteristic of a good shepherd, is that he loves you and that he's willing to lay his life down for his sheep. Now, men, I would hope that we would be willing to take a bullet for our wives, right? And that's easy for us to say, hey, I'll take a bullet for you, honey, as long as nobody's pointing a gun. Maybe we would take a bullet for our kids or for our grandkids or for a friend. It's interesting. Jesus says he would take it even for an enemy. A, a, a visual picture of this on March, 30, or March 30th of 1981, President Reagan, he was being escorted to his car. He was going to a Speech he intended to give. He was leaving the Washington Hilton, and a man by the name of John Hinckley Jr. approached him, got within about 20 to 25 feet of the president, and opened fire. Secret Service agent John, uh, Tim McCarthy, on reflex, positioned his body between the shooter and the president. While other men rushed the shooter, he became a human shield, shielding President Reagan from the bullets that were being fired. One of the shots struck McCarthy directly in the stomach. This is kind of a visual of what it means to take a bullet. And what Jesus is saying here is, um, I love you so much that I'm willing to die for you. And again, he's not just saying that he's going to do it. Romans tells us, interesting, it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ is declaring in this case that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Three months later, he'll be hanging on a cross doing exactly what he said he was willing to do, his love on full display. Here's the second thing. Not only is a good shepherd, not only are you loved, but you are known. He says in verse 14 of chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And, and this is a wonderful combination. Not only are you fully loved, but you're fully known. There's no mask that you have to wear. There's no facet of who you are that you have to keep hidden from him in order for him to love you. There's no return policy that came with your purchase when he purchased you with his blood. The fact that you are not just fully loved, but fully known. I remember Kristen and I got married uh, when we were young. We've been married 37 years. There were some things about me that my wife didn't know before we were married. Some annoying things. I I tend to snore and thrash and kick in my sleep. Sometimes when I'm watching TV, I'll clip my toenails and I'll leave them in a little pile and then I'll forget to throw them out. You know, just the little kind of everyday life things. You know what I'm talking about? Like like these are things she didn't know. And what God's saying is, I know all of those things. You're fully loved, you're fully known. Here's a third thing, you are led. Was that too much information? Probably, uh, Okay, I'll dial it down. Verse 27, you are led. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I just ask you a question, who are you following? Because you're following somebody. What is it about Jesus that makes him worthwhile? Why would we choose to follow Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 10 of chapter 10. He says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. So Jesus is coming um, to give us an abundance of life. And what that means is the joy, the satisfaction, the, the feeling of home, the feeling of belonging, those things that we all desire more than just being alive, but having satisfaction and completion in life. He's offering that. And because he's God, he knows how to deliver on what he's offering. Sometimes in, in my life, I find myself headed in a direction where I think I know where I'm going, but I'm not really sure. And, and my wife will often be in the car and we'll be doing a road trip and I'm not good at staying on main roads. I like to take back roads and I, I don't follow navigation real well. And she'll look at me and be like, Are, do you know where you're going? And I'll be like, absolutely. And she'll be like, do we need to stop for directions? And it's like, no way. Sometimes I don't know where I'm going, but I say that I know where I'm going. We had six kids. We have six kids, three of our own, three adopted. We adopted the three daughters in between the ages of our oldest and youngest son. So we had six kids in six years, five kids in high school at the same time. There's no manual for that. There's no book of instructions that came with my children. I'm, I, There were times where, as a a parent, you're you're trying to act like you know what you're doing and you've got this all figured out, and the truth is you're guessing. Do you know that Jesus, when he's leading us, is never guessing on what it takes to bring us to the abundant life that he's promised? And because he's God, he's never um, detoured, he's never off track. You are led, and then here's a fourth thing, you are protected. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I want to focus your attention just on that last verse, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Do you know what Jesus just did in that verse? He claimed to be God. Jesus just made the statement and the claim that he is God. How can we be sure? Well, we can look at how. The religious leaders responded. Look at verse 31. The the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for the good works that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Some have said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just did, and everybody knew it in the audience. They picked up stones to stone him because of it. But what Jesus has just said is you're not just loved, you're not just known, you're not just led, but you're also protected. Because I am God, nobody's gonna snatch, snatch you out of my hand. And the truth is, we, we believe that we have some level of control, but the truth is we don't have nearly the amount of control that we want to believe that we do. A man came into our service last night. I just paused to talk with him before the service as he was getting seated, and he said, yeah, we had a family funeral this week. Family member doing really well. No signs of being sick. Two weeks ago, died five days ago. And I don't know what tomorrow holds, and I don't know what is going to happen next, but here's what I know. Nothing snatches you out of the loving hand of God. So Jesus promises as a good shepherd that you are loved, you are known, you are led, and you are protected Let's go back and look at verse 9 to take what he has just said and put it to the test of looking at how he deals with people and see if he is truly the good shepherd. It's interesting in... Chapter 10, he's not talking about sheep. He's contrasting good shepherds to bad shepherds. In verse 5 of chapter 10, he says, A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. He compares them to bad shepherds in verse 12 of chapter 10. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we need to contrast Jesus, a good shepherd, with bad shepherds. And man, there is a temptation in my spirit right now to take you and and, and look at our culture and look at what's going on in our world and contrast Jesus, the good shepherd, to some of the nonsense that I'm seeing in our culture. But honestly, that would be too easy. And when we go to chapter 9, what we see is Jesus isn't contrasting himself as a good shepherd to what's going on in Rome or in culture. He's contrasting himself to things that are going on in the church. And some of the things he's concerned about, I'm concerned about this morning. Because it's very easy to mistake the good shepherd for the field next door. And the field next door to where the good shepherd wants you to be is not a good pasture, and there's not great grass there. And the field next door will, it'll rot your soul. It's not going to satisfy you. And sadly, the field next door is not what's going on in our culture. It's what's going on in some of our churches. The bad field is the field of religion, going through the motions of following the good shepherd. And one of the great reveals has been what we've gone through in the last year. His meeting has been disrupted, and our routine of religion has been interrupted. Many of us have really struggled, if we were honest, right? And what we found is we're going through the motions, we're going through the process, we've got the habits, we've got the patterns, but we don't want to be following religion. We want to make sure that we're following the Good Shepherd. So let's contrast the two of these, religion and Good Shepherd, as we move through Chapter 9. Here's the first thing that I would say. Point one, if you're keeping notes Good shepherds have compassion up close, bad shepherds argue from afar. Good shepherds have compassion up close, bad shepherds argue from afar. John 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, so I'm going to need some help here. And typically, what I do is I just grab like Tyler or somebody or Brandon from the front row, but this one's going to cost me some chips, so I need to find a pretty good friend. Um, Jeff, would you come up? He was already shaking his head as I kind of moved this way. I, I'm going to need you for the next few minutes. Can you give me a hand here? So, so Jeff Stuck is going to come up. He's been um, a good friend of mine, and um, you're going to help me. You're going to be um, the blind man in this story, okay? So I'm just going to kind of have you stand here, and uh, not only are you going to be the blind man, so I don't know that you're going to win any Oscars for this, but maybe like a daytime Emmy, we'll go for that level, okay? But, but in acting like a blind man, what do you think would be an effective way to portray a blind man? Okay, closing your eyes. See, see you were, that's, why I, that's why I brought you up here. I'm like, I can trust this guy. But, but here's the problem. He's been blind since birth, right? What are the odds he wears glasses? Okay, so let's take the glasses off. We're not going to need those. You can kind of put those in a pocket or whatever. And I need you to do some, some heavy-duty acting. I just need you to stand and close your eyes, okay? And no matter what happens next, you can't open them because you're blind. I'm just going to let you know that ahead, okay? So you just stand there. So you just stand there and be blind, okay? How's he doing so far? If he peeks, I want to know, okay? Okay. <laughs> Here's one of the things that I'll tell you, just because I don't want to just focus on, on the physical blindness that happens in chapter 9. You need to know that in Scripture, often physical blindness is symbolic of spiritual blindness. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And, and, and so what it's saying there is for unbelievers, their eyes have been blinded and and. It's not that they choose not to see. It's not that they're not willing to see. They cannot see. They are spiritually blind. All of us were born spiritually blind. And apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, so we would remain spiritually blind. It's interesting in verse 2, the disciples, Jesus has walked up. He's noticed this man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. So the disciples are stumped. He asks Jesus a multiple-choice question. Whose fault is it that he's blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? Kind of this idea of, of karma. Something bad must have caused a bad consequence. Maybe their mind was back into the Old Testament where it says that the sins of the parents sometimes go to the third and fourth generations, and that can be true. Some of us are from families that struggled with an addiction or alcohol or anger issues, and you find yourself with the same tendencies, the same proclivities. But good news, through the power of the cross, we can defeat those things, amen? Or or maybe they thought that it was his sin that caused his blindness, but either way, they were debating who was the cause of the blindness, and when you believe that when somebody is struggling, or when somebody is hurting, that that is when your mind immediately goes to the idea: well, something must have went wrong. They must have caused that in some way. Just what does that do to your compassion? Not a lot, right? So, as the disciples pass by, they're not looking at this man has someone to help. They're looking at him has something to debate. Now, I don't know. He's been standing there with his eyes closed for a while. I didn't forget about you. You just stay there, okay? So, so he's standing there, but the longer you go with your eyes closed, the more your ears prick off. Some of your other senses become more acute. You know what I'm talking about? So I don't know how far Jesus was from the disciples of this man when his disciples were engaging in this debate, but could he hear them? Could he hear what they were talking about? And they're debating the cause of his sin with no heart of compassion to help this man. Jesus answers in verse 3, it was not that this man has sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm starting to think that Jesus doesn't like multiple choice questions. If you were here last week, we studied the story of the woman caught in adultery and the leaders came to him and said, what should we do? Should we show her mercy and therefore deny the law? Or should we stone her and defy Rome, trying to trap Jesus? And he was like, Neither. Whoever is without sin casts the first stone. Here, it's like, whose sin? The parents are his. Again, not a fan of multiple choice questions. He says it's neither of those things. Look at what he says. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Stop seeing the man as is an issue to debate. And I would just ask you this. In this season that health issue, that struggle, that conflict, that storm that you might be experiencing? Did you ever think that maybe it's not all about you? That maybe this struggle that you find yourself in, it's not a test of your faith, but it's a proof of God's faithfulness. That maybe in this season where you don't understand why certain things have happened or why... This difficulty is the thing that keeps you up at night. Maybe God's looking to be glorified in your circumstances. That's what Jesus says. It's interesting. What they're touching on is an issue that is very um, central to human existence. Why is there pain and suffering? The problem of pain. C.S. Lewis wrote a book by that name, The Problem of Pain. And in that, he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Here's something you need to understand as followers of Jesus Christ. The world's broken, amen? Lewis goes on to say, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. The follower of Jesus Christ has a perspective on pain. It's not that it doesn't exist, but he understands the world is broken, suffering is real, but we also have the confidence that God is using this pain, this struggle, this sorrow, not just for his glory, but for our good. That promise is given to us in Romans 8, 28. And maybe in this season, if you're struggling or suffering, maybe a better question than how did I get here might be how is God going to use this For his glory. Look at verse four. You still blind? Okay. Um, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I would just say a couple things there. There's an urgency in Jesus' words here. As he's three, four months from the cross, his ministry is increasing in urgency. And he's saying, listen, the days are short when we can do the works of God. The months are ticking past, the years are ticking past, and maybe there's some things that you said you were going to do for the Lord, but you've been slow, you've been complacent. There needs to be an urgency in our desire to serve the Lord. Look at verse 6. This is where I needed you, Jeff, okay? So, So you're ready. It says this, having said these things... Jesus spat on the ground. So, so I want to just kind of visually explain to you what's going on. It's, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva, okay? This got a little tough for me because I don't know if you've looked outside, but there's a lot of snow, right? And it's hard to find mud. So I panicked a little bit because I'm like, I want to do this as a sermon illustration, but I don't know where to get mud. And in my panic, I missed the obvious. I should have just gone to Meyer and picked up potting soil, but I went to Wesco, <laughs> and I got bait, okay? So, so we've just got the, the, the mud from the, the bait here, which we're, we're going to use. And then um, I got busy pre-service back in the green room. Um, I didn't even get the worms out. I want to I kind of pull them quickly, but in uh, kind of showing you what Jesus did, just so we don't miss any of it, it says he spat on the ground, so... I'm a little dry. (laughs) Okay. So he spat on the ground. (laughs) As a blind guy, I think you'd be a little bit more excited about what's going on. I'm just, I'm just going to tell you. Okay. And then he, he, he made mud. Okay. With the saliva. So I got to get the juice out of there. Okay. Um, <laughs> there, there's another worm, sorry. <laughs> um, he's fat on the ground. He made the mud and the saliva. And then it says, let's get the text. He says, then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. Do you, do you know what anointed means? It means he's smeared. You could also translate it smeared. So he, he comes to the man. He goes, he goes right up to the man. Like, you can probably smell the mud right there, can't you? And the, and the coffee, can you kind of smell the combination? Yeah, we're good. And then what he does is he anoints his... Okay, I'm going to stop and let you go right there. Okay, that's as far as you have to go. I, I have this terrible fear that in illustrating Jesus healing a blind man, I'm going to make a guy who can see blind. So I'm going to stop right, right there and let you go. But thank you. Okay, thank you for your willingness. So here's my question. Why the theatrics? Why the mud, the the, the spit thing? Why the um, getting right up to the man, putting mud on his eyes? Why, why, Why does Jesus do all of that? How many of you think that he could have just said the words and the man would have regained his sight? And I think what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's creating a contrast with the disciples. They were willing to debate the cause of the man's troubles from afar. Jesus was like, I'm gonna get my hands dirty and I'm gonna get up close and I'm gonna help this man. We've mentioned it from time to time. One of the things that we did at the start of this service or this church is we prayed for messy ministry. I hope that's still true. Because the day has a church... That we get complacent and we're not willing to engage in messy ministry will be the day when the best days of this church are behind it. Because bad shepherds, they want to debate things. They want to debate theology from afar. Jesus was about helping people. He was about investing, getting up close. Good shepherds have compassion from up close. Look at verse End of verse 7, he says, And he said to them, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And then it says, So he went and he washed and he came back seen. Three actions very quick in that verse. He, he went and he washed and he came back seen. What do you think it was like for him to be headed towards the pool of Siloam? How did he get there? He's blind. Did he just know the area so well that he could find it on his own? Was there a friend or somebody that he trusted that would lead him over to the pool? I'm not sure Where was it in the journey towards that pool that all of a sudden his heart began to race and he maybe let himself believe just for a moment that he was actually going to be able to see? And then he gets to the pool and he washes his eyes and as the mud falls from his eyes, all of a sudden light breaks through and for the very first time he sees, what was the first thing that he saw? Was it his reflection in the pool? Was it the face of his trusted friend? Did he look around and for the first time see his surroundings? How, how incredible a miracle is this? And I'm reminded all, of, all the way back to Luke 4, Jesus standing in a synagogue in Nazareth at the start of his ministry. He says, I'm here so that the blind will recover their sight. Jesus is doing exactly what he said that he would do. It goes on. It says in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? So so he went back, he ran into the neighbors. Jesus isn't there. Verse nine, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. So they can't even figure out who this guy is. And he just kept saying, I am the man. Not like I am the man, just I'm the guy. I was blind, now I see. It's interesting. I have seen in our 10 years at this church, people debate changed lives. I've seen people be like, That guy goes to harvest? I went to high school with that guy. He was a fool. She goes to harvest? They're in a small group? Yeah, his life has radically changed. People are debating, can this even be the same person? Verse 10... So they said to him, how then are your eyes opened? In verse 11, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And the man said, I don't know. Here's the second point. Good shepherds show mercy, bad shepherds, major and minors. Bad shepherds, major and minors, good shepherds show mercy. Look at Verse 9. They, they being the neighbors, the, the, the people that have known him that were debating if this was the blind man brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Okay, they're, they're, they're trying to do him a favor, but they do him no favors. They brought him to the wrong field. They brought him to the wrong shepherds. It says in verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, I have to pause there because we missed something 2,000 years in the future. Back at the time when John would have said, now it's the Sabbath when he made the mud and opened his eyes, that would have created a, ah, in the crowd. This is the big reveal, the aha moment. Because the law didn't allow you to heal on the Sabbath. It didn't allow you to labor. And part of laboring was making mud. It was clearly defined. So so let's dial back so we don't miss what just happened. You be the crowd in Jesus' day. I'll read it again. You respond. Verse 14. Now, it was the Sabbath day. No, way more than that. Now, it was the Sabbath day. Okay, so you're getting there. This is a scandal, okay? Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Verse 15. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. You're starting to get the sense that the guy who was blind that can now see is getting a little irritated. His first description when the neighbors asked him, what did Jesus do? He gave 28 words in response. He gave detail. Now, these men are asking him the same question, and he's like, 12 words. He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Can I go now? I've only been able to see for a very short time, maybe a few hours, and I wasn't thinking that I wanted to spend my first hour seeing looking at a bunch of old guys with beards. Can we end the Inquisition? Can I go now? You're beginning to sense his frustration. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such sign? And there was division amongst them. So again, now the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they can't decide what to do with Jesus, who he is, how he gets the power to do the things that he's doing. So in verse 17, so again, they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The blind man said, he's a prophet. I don't know. I'm not great at speeches. He's a prophet. Can I go? See, the Pharisees, in chapter 10, there's this big thing going on. A blind man from birth has regained his sight. And then there's a minor thing going on. It happened on the Sabbath. Bad shepherds major, in minors. I think we need to be careful of that in this season, in this church, that we keep the gospel the main thing, preaching Christ and Christ crucified the main thing. There are many things going on in our world and debates within churches across our countries that can tear a body of believers apart. Good shepherds show mercy Bad shepherds major in minors. Here's a third thing. Verse 18, good shepherds heal. Bad shepherds lead through fear. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. So now the guy's parents are called in for the next level of inquisition. And note the skepticism in the Pharisee's voice. Is this your son? Who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? see? See, here's the sad thing. You're starting to sense the Pharisees don't even want it to be true. They, they don't want to rejoice with this man. They don't want to celebrate with this man. They're looking for an out. Verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. So, so they moonwalk out of this thing, right? Why did they do that? Look at the next verse. It says, he will speak for himself. Verse 22, it's in parentheses in your Bible, gives the reason. His parents said, that these, thing, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him, he is of age. See, here's the truth. Good shepherds heal, bad shepherds lead through fear. Religious people love to to drop the rules and, 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 and what happens if this and what happens if this. And here's Jesus showing mercy to a man blind, irrespective of the cause. It's interesting, we were preparing this sermon uh, the week before this week and early in this week. And then Wednesday, we sat down and had a meeting on what we're going to be preaching on next week. And as I'm preparing this message for this week, looking at this point on leading through fear, I'm fully aware that next week, I'm going to spend a majority of our message talking about hell. Funny how those things happen, isn't it? But listen, even as we talk about hell next week and we look at what Jesus had to say about eternity and heaven and hell, I'm not doing that to scare you. I'm doing that to celebrate the fact that though hell is real and Jesus talks about it a great deal, he makes a very strong argument that no one has to go there because he's provided a way of escape. He has paid the price, he has become our sacrifice. Here's a fourth thing, verse 24. Good shepherds rejoice in change. Brad's shepherds focus on process. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. The blind man answered, verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Here's one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see I love the fact that they're calling Jesus a sinner to a man who has just regained his sight. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he will be called a sinner by the religious leaders of his day. And do you know why? Because he did what they didn't expect him to do, and he hung out with people that they didn't expect that the Messiah would hang out with. Because Jesus didn't mind getting his hands dirty and mingling with people that were viewed in their culture as sinners, as lost causes, his people the pharisees would have avoided look at verse 26 they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes the man answered them i've told you already and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to be one of his disciples now now that's funny I, I, have to, I have to give some props to the guy because a guy who spent his whole life in darkness, blind from birth, hasn't cost him his sense of humor. And as they continue to interrogate him, who healed you? How did he heal you? Give glory to God. This man must be a sinner. <laughs> like, deny what just happens. The guy's like, oh, really? You want more details? you that curious? You, you want to become a disciple? Look at verse 28. They didn't find it as funny as I did. Um, they said in verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Just, just a side point here. They've just called the man a disciple. And the truth is, he really hasn't followed Jesus anywhere. All he's done has been healed by Jesus. But even Just being healed by Jesus, to be able to say that Jesus and his encounter with him has had this effect on his life, he is immediately reviled by others. And if you choose to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you better prepare to be reviled. Some people aren't going to be happy. They're not going to like it. You're going to be called some names. It goes with the territory of following the good shepherd. What's sad about this exchange with the Pharisees it's interesting. In John five thirty nine, Jesus said to these religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, and we talked a couple of weeks ago, this word eternal life, that word life, it's more than just being alive. It's not immortality. That would have been the Greek word bios, but it's the Greek word zoe, which means abundant life. Fulfilled life, satisfaction in life. And what he's saying to these religious leaders is, you're disciples of Moses. You've searched the entire Old Testament looking for eternal fulfillment. But it's the Old Testament that bears witness about me because I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who came to give you abundant life. Religious people are blind to their blindness. Blindness. If you're keeping notes, the big idea, I would just say this because I missed it earlier. Make sure you're following the right shepherd. Make sure you're following the right shepherd. Verse 30, the man answered, they've, they've just reviled him. His boldness is increasing. You'll see this. In verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he's opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Boom, mic drop. Blind guy just drops the mic. And he goes, you've got a problem with your theological conclusions. And that problem is me. Because I can see. And we can debate where he's from, good guy, bad guy, but nowhere in all of history have we seen a man do what this man just did. Without God, he could do nothing. Here's the last point. Good shepherds pursue, bad shepherds dismiss. Look at verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. First troubled me. Here, here, here's what bothered me. Cast him out. What, like, What does that mean? To, to cast somebody out, don't you have to be in? The guy was never in. He, he was blind. They passed by him every day. They never did anything to help him, let alone heal him he was someone to be ignored he was somebody to be discarded he was never in he was never in a position for them to cast him out because they had never thought anything about him to begin with they didn't give a rip about this man and they've just revealed their hearts look what it says next verse 35 jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him okay So Jesus hears that he's been cast out by the religious leaders. And what does Jesus do? He he finds him. Doesn't run into him on the street. This is intentional. Hey, hey, where is that guy? We have to find him. Because our Savior has declared that the reason that he came was to seek and to save the lost. So he's about doing what he said he was going to do. He goes and he finds this man. And he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Here's what I don't want you to miss in the story. It's right now, after Jesus finds him, that I want you to understand something. This is the first time the man has ever seen Jesus. Jesus sent him with mud on his eyes to wash at the pool of Siloam. And when he got back, Jesus wasn't there. The neighbors didn't know where he'd gone. Then he's in and out of interrogations with the Pharisees. They cast him out. Jesus finds him. This is the first time that he has laid eyes on Jesus. He's been healed by Jesus. The man has had his life radically changed. He's been affected by Jesus but he still doesn't understand who Jesus is. There's been a progression in the passage. In verse 11, he says the man called Jesus. In verse 17, he refers to Jesus as a prophet. And in verse 33, he calls him a man from God. But something has just clicked. Something has changed because in verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. See, this is the problem with religion. They studied the Old Testament scriptures, the religious leaders did, looking for abundant life and then missed the Messiah when he was right under their noses. And it is possible to be affected by Jesus. Maybe you, maybe you negotiated in the middle of a struggle. Maybe you were in a difficult season and you said, Lord, if you do this, I'll follow you and And in a moment, you recognized who Jesus was, you cut a deal, you set up a desperate prayer, but the truth is, you've wandered into the wrong field, you're going through the motions of religion, and you never really followed the good shepherd, See, it's not until this instant where the man sees Jesus for who he truly is that you see him respond so differently. First, he says, Lord, hey, you have authority. I'm going to follow. You're in charge. You're in control. You know, it's possible to go to church every week, go through the motions, be involved in small groups, be involved in Bible studies your devotions every day and never yield the authority of your life to Jesus Christ you know that's possible right and that's a cruddy field the man says Lord I believe do you see what he did next he worshiped he bowed the knee he yielded the authority in his life to Jesus Jesus interesting, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, there can be different reactions. For some, they say that can't be true. Or maybe they understand it conceptually to be true, but they say that's not for me because they forget that they're fully loved and fully known. And they say that, that forgiveness, that lifting of guilt and shame, maybe that's for somebody else, but it's not for me. Others look at the facts of Jesus, and they want to debate theology, and they want to understand the nuances of sanctification and double predestination or who knows what. And they debate from afar, but they never get their eyes on Jesus, see him for who he really is, and they never choose to worship. C.S. Lewis, again in The Problem of Pain, said it this way, we regard We regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. May that not be said of us. So, here's how I want to close the service a little bit differently. Can I have you guys stand? And it seems fitting to me that we should maybe go back to the Old Testament to a psalm that many of you will be familiar with that's Psalm 23. And I want to take a moment and just refresh our memories of what it's like to follow the Good Shepherd. But before we read it, I would just ask you to consider one thing. This morning, right now, in this moment, the most important word in the entire psalm is the fourth word. The Lord is my shepherd. Because we can recite a psalm. We can read the words We can know the passage. But if we don't get that fourth word right, if the Lord is not my shepherd, the one that I'm following, the one that I've yielded to, the one that I'm worshiping, then all we are is aware of who Jesus is and maybe he's even affected our behavior, but he's not our savior because he's not our shepherd and we're not following. So the question that I would ask as you read this passage is a simple one. Are you reciting something on the screen or are you declaring something that is true of you? Read with me, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in passive righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a great truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, declaring who you are but not just with words but with actions. Father, thank you for being a Savior who went so far beyond dirty hands. You humbled yourself. You left heaven. You died on our behalf. You conquered death. You rose again. You are our good shepherd. Thank you for not staying at a distance, but meeting us in our brokenness. And Father, thank you for pursuing us. You've declared you'll never leave us or forsake us. And for that, we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.